We're coming this evening to the end of the series that we began last September on the Gospel according to John entitled Come and See. And we get to come and see one final time in uh, this Gospel, at least in this series. And it's been a, a, a rich, this Gospel gives us a lot of rich material to dig into and we've gotten to think about what it means to follow Jesus and to see his kingdom come and uh, to, to walk in love with one another. And as we come now to the final passage, it's in the epilogue of this gospel, we discover some rich and needed insights. You might remember from last week that this epilogue portrays for us what is coming after we come to faith. In many ways, the narrative up to the end of chapter 20 was all about the signs of Jesus that culminate in the death and resurrection that lead to the confession of faith on the lips of doubting Thomas, who says, my Lord and my God. And the conclusion of chapter 20 makes no secret about the author's purpose in writing that we would come to generate or to deeper faith in this Jesus and have life in his name. And the epilogue, in a sense, answers the question, so what next? Now what? And we saw last week in the story of the miraculous catch of fish that this symbolically portrays the task of the church to do mission and evangelism and reach people who could come into the fold in this new kingdom. And in this text today, we're going to explore again further about the task of the church, and we'll look at it under three headings. Love, feed, and follow. So we start with love, and by this, I mean essentially two things. First, God's love for us, and then our love for God. God's deep love for us. This exchange with Peter in verses 15 through 17 is all about love in both of these dimensions. And there are two details in this text that bring to mind Peter's prior failure, specifically his threefold denial of Jesus and of having anything to do with Jesus on the night of his arrest and trial. The first is the mention of a charcoal fire in verse 9 of chapter 21. The only other time that this word is used actually throughout the entire New Testament is also in John, and it's in chapter 18, verse 18. Jesus, or Peter is warming himself at a charcoal fire alongside the servants and the officers in the courtyard of the high priest. And standing that by that fire, he denies twice any association with Jesus. The third time was right before those two denials with the servant girl at the entrance into the courtyard when he denied also there that he knew Jesus. So this idea of a charcoal fire on the beach after they've had breakfast, now breakfast is over, brings all of this back to mind, as does a second detail in the text, which is the fact that Jesus asks him three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And of course, Jesus is indirectly, but very intentionally, seemingly bringing up Peter's threefold denial. And his intention in doing this was not to be harmful, but to be pastoral. In fact, Peter is grieved on the third time that Jesus asked the question, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you, he says. But Jesus was intending to bring this up, this most embarrassing, egregious, and perhaps most awful moment of Peter's life in order that he might deal with that part of his life. Peter's denials were public. They were known by the broader church. They were recorded in all four of our gospels. And what makes his denials even worse is that they came on the heels of his incredibly brave and bold declarations of fidelity, even to the point of death. In Matthew 26, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Peter says. 
or in the Johannine version in John 13, after Jesus says, you, you can't follow me now, but later you'll follow me. Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. It's these bold claims that put into great relief the cowardly denials that came just a couple of hours later. And this is all being brought to mind to show us something about the divine love of God, of forgiving reinstating, commissioning kind of love. It's really radical. In fact, Jesus's first question seems to be testing Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We think, Jesus, why would you ask him if he loves you more than the other people around on the beach? But remember, Peter had claimed to be more faithful than the others. Even if everybody else denies you, I won't, Jesus. And of course he had. Peter seems to have learned his lesson because in his answer, he doesn't compare himself or his love to, the, to that of the others. He just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, which is a pretty humble way of saying it. It's not even declaring his own love. It's in many ways saying, Lord, you know, you know what's in my heart. You proved that already because you told me I would deny you. I didn't believe it. You know what's in my heart. And Lord, you know that I love you. I can't fool you with my words. Jesus again brings all of this to the foreground in this amazing interaction. Not to humiliate, not to shackle him in further guilt, but as if to say, Peter, you're forgiven. That's done in the past. I've dealt with it at the cross. I'm bringing healing. And I'm now reinstating you as a leader in the ministry of my church to move forward. I think it's important for us to recognize that the key leader of the earliest church was a man who knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he had failed, that he could not stand on his own merits or accomplishments, that apart from the Lord's grace, he was done, unfit for the service to which he had been called. But the Lord showed him this amazing love, this forgiving love. And this is foundational to the task of the church, which remember is the larger backdrop of the subject of chapter 21, this epilogue. Because to miss this, to miss this foundational love of God that forms the basis of all of our lives and our ministries, that heals all of our past failures, to miss that is to lead to some kind of distortion in the Christian life. Gary Burge, a New Testament scholar, in reflecting on this passage, points out that if our failures and sins are not healed, if they're not addressed by God's love, then our ministries will in fact be distorted. They'll either be a constant labor to pay for our past failures, which will lead to a kind of zeal and effort that attempts to bury the past in the past, to prove to oneself and to others that you really belong, that you really are a faithful disciple. But those who operate in this way will end up being exhausted and exhausting others. And down that road, there is little joy in terms of the joy that Jesus speaks about in his ministry and great burnout and much cynicism. So that's one possible path. Another path actually is down the path of despair, to, to succumb to despair over our failures and to self-criticism and to spiritual pessimism. And that doesn't lead anywhere healthy either. I remember hearing a pastor talk about his early years in ministry 
encountering a man in his church who was in his 50s who committed adultery. And he was unable to ever get over that failure and to depend upon the grace of God in such a way that he finally took his own life. He just couldn't live in the reality of the forgiveness and grace of God. And he couldn't come to terms with his own failure or with a grace that was comprehensive enough to deal with that failure in a, in a substantial way. And it destroyed him. And in the end, all of our efforts at self-righteousness will be destructive, both to ourselves and to those around us. And so a ministry that takes place or comes out of a place where those things are not addressed, where our past failures are not healed by the love of God, will be a ministry that is distorted and hurtful. We cannot do the work of the kingdom without encountering the deep love of God that brings a newness in our life. What I love about Peter is he had no choice. I mean, when he stood up to preach at Pentecost, everybody knew that he was the guy who had denied Jesus. That was known. It was public. And so he had to depend wholly and completely upon the grace and mercy and love of God. I find it so compelling, actually, that the other great apostle of the earliest church, the apostle Paul, Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, that he too was unfit and unqualified, disqualified really from serving in the kingdom because he had persecuted Jesus and his church, giving approval to those who had stoned Stephen in the book of Acts. And this is what Paul says about his own life. This is his own assessment in 1 Corinthians 15. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a great motto for the Christian life. By the grace of God, I am what I am. All that Paul is depends upon the gracious love of God. All that Peter is depends upon the gracious love of God. All that you are or that I am in the service of the church, in the service of our king, depends upon the grace of God, the love of God that forgives and heals. We see this pattern in the lives of the men and women who have gone before us, I'll give one example from, from India in the early 20th century. Sadhu Sundar Singh, who was a powerful minister of the gospel, and dedicated himself to the service of Jesus and to do so in a form that he felt would be most effective to reach other Indians for the gospel. His formative experience as a teenager was burning the Bible in protest against God because of his anger over his mother's premature death at the age when he was only 15 years old. He knew he had shoved his fist into the face of God. Three days later, he was wrestling all night long and he met God in a powerful way at 4.30 in the morning. He said his room was flooded with what felt like it was light. And then he heard a voice speaking to him who said, how long will you persecute me? I have come to save you. And that was the turning point. His family denied him, but he knew that he belonged to Jesus, a Jesus that he didn't deserve, a Jesus that he had, in a sense, very clearly denied by burning his word publicly. And that began the rest of his ministry, which was powerful until his premature death at the age of 40 in 1929. This is a pattern knowing that we're not fit, we're not worthy, but God's love meets us still, chases after us, runs us down, and transforms us. And what, that's the picture that we see here 
of what's going on in the life of Peter. So that's the first dimension of the love. It's God's love for us, this amazing love that I love the Gospel of John ends us, ends for us with this picture of that love. But the second dimension of that is, is the flip side of our love for God. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? As we think about the tasks of the church, this wide-reaching mission and the caring for the flock that is commissioned, that Peter is commissioned for here, this is the question that the risen Jesus asks of Peter and therefore asks of us all. And he repeats it three times, making the point incredibly clear. This is what matters in my service. Do you love me? It's love for Jesus that is the single most important qualifier to make us fit to serve him. Do we love him? I wonder if Jesus was standing beside you today with all of your failures exposed before him, but not there to condemn you, not there to shame you, but there to forgive you, heal you, call you and commission you. And he asked you, do you love me? How might you respond? I suppose that one way we could answer that question is by turning to our feelings and saying, you know, that Jesus, of course I love you. I feel passionately about you. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that that's unimportant, that love somehow bypasses it, the emotions. It doesn't. It engages the emotions. But we all know that our passion can come and go, can ebb and flow. Our feelings can be woefully unreliable for understanding what's really in our heart. If we're to actually think about this question in light of what we've learned from the gospel according to John, we might understand that the right answer to do you love me is that knowing we are forgiven, we will obey him. We will do what he says. Back in the upper room discourse in chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A couple verses later, whoever, is, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then a couple verses later, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. John Stott's nearly final words in print in his last book, The Radical Disciple, in the last paragraph were this, were these. Basic to all discipleship is our resolve not only to address Jesus with polite titles, but to follow his teaching and obey his commands. That's what it means to love him. It is to obey him. And this is what defines the lives of his disciples. So that's love. God's love, radical love for us, and our love in response to his love back to him. Second, feed. Love, feed, and follow. Second is feed. Now Jesus moves on to discuss what this means, and, and he gives a charge to Peter that defines the nature of leadership in the church. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. There are different words used here, much like there are different words used for the word love in the prior interaction. And it used to be that we made some a bigger deal out of the, the shift in vocabulary. But modern consensus is that these are just of ways of saying this, different ways of saying the same thing. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well then, love those, take really good care of those that I love, of my sheep. It's quite a simple charge, actually, and it's beautiful. Because here we find something that is basic to the life of the church and the task of the church. And this applies especially to leaders in the church, and I would say especially to pastors and elders. But honestly, it applies to all of us as well. Care for those whom God has welcomed into his fold. The basic idea is to, prov to prov provide for, to nurture, 
to correct, to teach, to lead. And let's notice two things about Jesus' charge to Peter. The first is, he just says, feed my sheep. He doesn't specify a particular branch of the sheep, as can be common for leaders in the church today, just to focus on certain sheep, perhaps the influential sheep, or the big donor sheep, or the loudest sheep, or only the sheep who lead other sheep. No, it's not specified. And I think that's beautiful, actually, and intentional. Just feed my sheep. We're called to care for and feed and nurture all that God has brought into his fold. Not just those that might, because of their position in the church or even out in the world, heaven forbid, may make us feel like they're worthy of our attention. Second, the sheep that Peter is called to care for are not his sheep. Jesus says, feed my sheep. They belong to me. He has poured out his life for them, laid down his life for them, and he's won them over and brought them into his fold. And now, Peter, because you love me, Jesus is saying, because you love me, now love those that I love. Love those who belong to me. Pour your life out for them out of love for me, Peter. Feed my sheep. For larger churches like ours at Park Street, this can be a challenge. But it is our central task to shepherd well. We can have great teaching, great programs, great service of our city in Jesus' name. And all of these are good. But if we miss this point, we've missed the crucial and critical point. We are to be a place where relationships of care exist for one another. To bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2 And this is essential for the task of the church. Let me say a couple things about this in light of our present moment. We... Along with all of you, I give great thanks for the use of technology during this unusual time. And I know that in many ways, we've we've even become more connected because of our Zoom meetings. And we've actually been able to care for one another even more tangibly because of this. And for that, I praise God. But I do also want to say, and issue a small warning, that there is a sense in which watching a service on a screen can reinforce the idea of church as primarily about content consumption and not about relationships. That's an idea that already had a lot of currency before the pandemic, but I'm afraid that its currency has increased in value as we have attended services of our liking with churches all across the nation and perhaps even all across the world, right from the comfort of our own living rooms or bedrooms. And of course, that is a gift in many ways. I want to acknowledge that. But it is something about which we are to be thoughtful and discerning. Understand what Jesus commissioned Peter to do here, to feed and tend my sheep, that this is highly relational, highly personal, particular, and local work. This is something that can and is to happen in the local church and that can never be replaced by listening to sermons or reading great books or studying the Bible using the Bible Project videos, which are wonderful, and so on. All of those things are good, and we can indeed be fed God's word through these other ways that don't involve personal connection. But they can never take the place of what Jesus commissions Peter to do here. Feed my sheep. Back in chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep know my voice. And he says, the shepherd knows the sheep by name. He talks about this intimate kind of reality and relationship that only the local church can provide in the lives, each of our lives, where the work of shepherding is to take place. 
it's here in the local church where we are to have that kind of care and of love and of pastoring that is integral to the task of the church and the mission of the church. This again is what Peter is commissioned to do and to some degree at least all of us are commissioned to do this with him. This kind of work will be inefficient. It will be at times arduous and tedious. Love is hard and caring for others is not easy. But it is the call upon our lives as the people of God and particularly upon those of us who are called into leadership in the church. This is what we are to be about, to love and care for, to tend and feed the sheep that Jesus died for and loves. Do you love me? Jesus asked. Well, then feed my sheep. I would ask all of us, especially if you're involved in leading in some way, is this a part, a primary part of your life? feeding his sheep. So love, feed, and now finally follow. The gospel comes to an end with this word to follow. Jesus says in verse 19, follow me. And then again in verse 23, he repeats it emphatically and says, you follow me. The call to follow is at the heart of the call to be a disciple. We follow Jesus wherever he leads. Just after giving Jesus the charge to feed his sheep, Jesus tells Peter that his life will entail an unwanted reality. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It's astonishing, really. Most are agreed that the expression stretch out your hands implies crucifixion. And verse 19 clarifies that this was to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Which is to say that to follow Jesus in the task of fishing, in the task of shepherding, the task that he gives to the church, is not an invitation into a life of comfort and ease. It is an invitation into some kind of suffering and hardship. I would say in particular into the voluntary sufferings of love as we are called to take up our cross alongside Jesus. At the end of the 19th century, Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, no doubt Christ's way to eternal life is a way of pleasantness, but it is folly to shut our eyes to the fact that his way is narrow and the cross comes before the crown. This sobering comment in verse 18 to Peter is prefaced with truly, truly I say to you, which is constant in this gospel for really listen up. I have something important to share with you. And I think Jesus is sharing this not just with Peter, but with all who would pick up this call of discipleship. And after he says that this will entail things that he doesn't want, things that Peter would say to his father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not what I will, but what you will. Those kinds of things will be part of Peter's life. And in my experience, at least, they're part of all of our lives as well. And Jesus just says, follow me. Just keep your eyes fixed on me and follow me, Peter. Do the next thing that you're supposed to do and do it well. Do it faithfully. Peter, after being given this word that perhaps takes him by surprise, looks at the beloved disciple and says, Lord, what about this man? In verse 21. And he is told, in a sense, by Jesus, quite simply, just, Jesus, that's none of your business. If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? And the writer clarifies that Jesus didn't say this man wouldn't die. There was probably some rumor running around the church that 
that the beloved disciple would never die, but he says, he didn't say, Jesus didn't say that. He just said, if it's my will that he remain, what is that to you? And then he says to Peter, you follow me. Stop looking around and comparing your situation. Stop being envious of the gifts of other people. Stop wondering why your life has so much suffering and it seems like the next person's doesn't. You follow me, Peter. This is what it means to love Jesus. It means to have the single-minded focus upon following him wherever he leads, to, to say to him, anytime, any place, Lord, I'm following, I'm yours. And even if this entails hardship and things that we do not want, this is the best and safest place for us to be. Brother Yoon, who wrote the book, The Heavenly Man, was a minister in China for a long time. And he said this, we're not called to live by human reason. All that matters is obedience to God's word and his leading in our lives. If God says go, we'll go. And if he says stay, we'll stay. When we are in his will, we are in the safest place in the world. One more point about follow me. Because it isn't just follow me to the cross. Where is Jesus as he's saying this to Peter? He's gone through the cross. He's gone through death. He's come out the other side victorious and resurrected. Now standing firmly on resurrection, new creation ground. And he says, follow me. Which means, yes, you'll take up the cross. But always on the flip side of the cross, there will be resurrection. Peter, you will come through all of this to new, never-ending, overflowing, abundant, eternal life. And Jesus stands in that life in front of Peter on the beach and says, follow me, Peter. And he says the same to all of us, that we, we would follow him, the resurrected and ascended king. We celebrated his ascension on Thursday in the church calendar. He is on the throne now and he's alive and he's saying, follow me. Yes, through the valley of the shadow of death, but then one day through up to the new creation with a new resurrected body, follow me. It's an incredible call. It's a gift to hear that call. So as we come to the end of this gospel, love, feed, and follow. We see these three dimensions of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And as we come and see, we will encounter this king whose love is so overwhelming, forgiving, restoring, commissioning, that we've never encountered anything like it, that it can handle all of the things that we've done in the past and bring us into a new space where we are forgiven and able to be healthy and alive and to participate now in something much bigger and broader than ourselves or our small little agendas for our lives. We can participate in God's mission for his world to bring life and healing and wholeness. One day to bring full restoration. Come and see. Come and see this Jesus. Encounter his love and then be transformed by that love such that now we love him. We feed his sheep. We love others. And then we go into the world and we follow him. That is the call upon our lives. And it's a joyous, wondrous, exhilarating call that this entire gospel invites us into. And I love the last verse, the 24th verse, identifies the beloved disciple as the author of this gospel. So this is eyewitness testimony. And then the last verse, there's this remark that were everything to be written that Jesus did, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. There is so much more. We know in part, but one day we will get to know in fuller and fuller measure. The rest of eternity is ours to enjoy, to know, to comprehend, and to worship this one amazing God, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. Amen.